Welcome to the Rust Belt Rundown, brought to you by Rust Belt Recruiting. This podcast is designed to shine a light on the meaningful work being done in Northeast Ohio and the surrounding region. We will convene manufacturing executives and Northeast Ohio business leaders for candid discussions about their business, regional happenings, industry trends, entrepreneurship, and more. Now, let's get running on the rundown. Welcome, everyone, to episode 63 of the Rust Belt Rundown, a production by Workforce LLC. I'm your host, Paul O'Connor, and on this episode, we are joined by Josh Kramer, Director of Education and Workforce Development at America Makes and National Center of Defense Manufacturing and Machining. Josh, good morning. Thanks for joining the podcast early on a rainy Thursday in Columbus. Yeah, and good morning. And and, and I, I agree. I'm, I'm sitting in southwestern PA, uh, raining here as well. Uh, and and probably stay in that way if it's raining out your way, just scrapes over here. So uh, excited to be here. Uh, honored that you asked me to join in. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here, man. Let's jump in. Um, you spent, you know, essentially your entire career in the education world. Over the course of your career, I'm curious to get your vantage point on what you think the education industry has done right or gotten right in the last 20 years or so? Uh, and what are some things that uh, we still need to work on? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think um, when when I talk about my career, uh, you know, and, and I've been blessed to, to have the opportunities that I've had and, and really look at it as a, a blessing. And, and I started as a classroom educator. I spent about 10 years in a classroom. Uh, my wife is still an educator today. Uh, you know, their first day with students uh, today. Um, oh, man. And okay. so, you know, it, but and and I've also had the you know the best blessed privilege to to really have some great students and and keep in touch with many of them over the years and those kind of things. My wife and I were just talking last night at dinner, and, and she has a couple of former students that now you know we're into that next generation. I guess we've hit that milestone in age, I guess. But <laughs> and she was even sharing a story of a of a former student who came up and was talking about something that that we had done in my classroom years ago, right? I was, I was an educator who was trying to, you know, teach the tip of the spear. So uh, at that time it was, it was middle school. So you had as young as 10 year olds and, and we had 3d printers and we had laser cutters and we had CNC machines and, and you name it, right? We were teaching 3d modeling software. And she talked about this wrench design challenge that we had, which was the first thing that they learned how to do in, in CAD. And so, you know, she brought it to school and showed my wife and said, remember this, you know, and I mean, just so, you know, that's really what fuels me every day is because we need that experience for those students sitting in the classroom. And, and I've been out of the classroom now for I, you know, every time I say it, I swear I have to add a year, but I think 14 years, you know, and, and have a really a cool opportunity and, and working with Project Lead the Way, working with the SME and, and the SME Education Foundation and now you know, you know, at the helm here at NCDM, I'm an America makes. And so I tell my team every day and, and really driving with, there's someone that sits in a seat somewhere in a classroom that's impacted by the decisions we make and, and the critical nature of that. And I think where we've seen the shift of education, you know, and I'm not saying there's not a far way to go and, and those kind of things, but, you know, we had this shift that happened, you know, you said 20 years ago, right? And that's about when I started, uh, you know, and, and those kind of things. And so 
from there till now, I think students are seeing more opportunity um, than probably ever. Um, I'm a proud father of a, of a son who starts career tech ed tomorrow. Right. And so, you know, he made that choice to really know where he wants to go in life. And, and that's fantastic. And not afraid to step outside of the realm and say, hey, I'm going to go to the career tech school and, and those kind of things. But I think when we look at how many students have that opportunity, and he's a kid that has advanced math and advanced English and advanced history class and, you know, and, and those kind of things. So I think opportunity is is there as much as ever. Um, you know, there are more schools that now are very much ensuring that they have every opportunity for all of the students. Uh, you know, there's obviously, you know, tons of investment coming into the career tech ed schools, uh, as well as core academic schools to ensure these students have opportunities, have access to equipment and, and technology. You see more and more schools, you know, and, and leadership in schools embracing that, which, you know, candidly wasn't there as much 20 years ago. You know, we were at the, maybe the bottom, I'm hoping the bottom of the valley, you know, which was really, you know, this place where, you know, all of the quote unquote shop classes were gone from schools. Yeah. You know, the, the career tech ed had such a bad stigma that students didn't want to go there. Um, parents didn't want their kids there. And I think we're we're climbing up out of that. I don't know if we're peaked. I'm hoping we're not because we surely need them in manufacturing. There's no doubt. Yep. But but I'm, I think we're, we're climbing that mountain. Uh, and, and I think there is just a tremendous number of people that I get to engage with every day, including our core team, you know, here within our organization, turning away on this. And, and I say it all the time. You know, we affectionately call them AM Nation, you know, but it's one of those things where it, you know, I mean it when I say it, it's going to take all of us. This is not something that one organization or or one group of people can fix. It's going to take everyone in every facet to really tackle it. So I think I think we're on the back side of that, hopefully now, um, you know, and so I would say that's where. We've been working at it, you know, there's more options than just college and then and we're not saying that you shouldn't go to college, but everyone, everyone's working on career in high school. How do you want to get there? Who do you want to pay for it? Um, you know, when do you want to start making your money? It's all of those things that really drive to the opportunity that these students have and where those decisions are and which steps they take along the way. Can you, we, we have talked about this, as you can imagine, uh, we, we have a lot of manufacturing uh, folks on this podcast, and we have talked about, you use the word stigma, and I think that's right. I think I'm 33. I turn 34 tomorrow. There was not, I, I have said this on the podcast before, there was not even a shadow of a doubt of what we were supposed to do after high school. Like there wasn't, like when I say to your point of like, Oh yeah, you could you could learn to be an electrician or a carpenter or a plumber or anything in the manufacturing space. That wasn't even on the menu. And I I'm curious to get your thoughts on I think you're right. I don't think that's peaked. I do think the pendulum has swung in for the for the good in the other direction of people saying, actually, we are in need of all of those things and more, and you can make really, really good money. And I think the stigma is going away, but can you speak to why you think there was a stigma there? 
Yeah, and, and we should we should knew all of it, right? And, and and so I think I see this from a couple different vantage points. You know, I came from a classroom and worked with those those exact students, right? And that was one of the reasons I left the classroom. I really I really felt that I would be would have been a lifer in the classroom. I, I very much believe, and I jokingly say this all the time, but I, I'm serious when I say it, which is, I will circle back to that environment before I end my career, and, mm-hmm. and it'll be a different feel because I taught a life skills class, you know, every day for about five years. And that's how I started my day with students that had, you know, severe disabilities. And we, and we taught them STEM education, taught them hands-on learning. And, and I think that's where I'll end because I think there's a tremendous opportunity there, you know, specifically, but I think, you know, and I taught an upper middle class neighborhood, you know, I was in the suburbs of Pittsburgh and, and these were all students that probably were destined for college before no matter what I did, right? And and I often say that, right? That that top 10%, they're going to college regardless of what we do, you know? But there's a middle 80% that we kind of, you know, can can talk to. And I think it was just, I think it was a parent thing. I think yeah. it was very much a parent thing that then got transferred into, you know, counselors in schools and maybe even school leadership and some teachers that were just, you could make more money. You could have a better career. Yeah. You know, by by having a college degree. And that impacted me personally when I decided to to take my path and to pursue industrial technology and then technology education, um, you know, and those kind of things. And I've since got master's degrees and those kind of things. All great. But my point was, like, when I said I wanted to, like, do that and become a teacher, the number of people that were like, well, you're not going to make a lot of money, you know. And so it was like, do you really want to do that? And and so, you know, it's it's interesting. And I think that more and more people, you know, every generation, as they say, wants better for their kids. They want them to do a little better than they did, right? And and again, I had the privilege of working with a lot of manufacturers over the years, and and we had done some very interesting surveying of manufacturers and. You know, without saying names, we went into some very large manufacturing facilities and we did some surveying and different things. And we would ask current employees, you know, are you happy working here? Yes. Love it. You know, do you love the environment? It's fantastic. I wouldn't work anywhere else. And then we asked that question. Well, would you would you promote the idea of your of your child working here? And the answer would be no. I know what, and, is... it, and it's the craziest thing to think. Like you're happy, you think this is a great life, you think this is awesome for you, but but you don't want that for your child, and so it's a it's a weird thing. And I and I think people are getting over that when they start to see the stories, right? So mm-hmm. so we're always big. We're launching this new thing called AM Jobs that talks all about the people in the industry, you know, and, and affectionately, where did they come from? You know, like we know where they came from. But my point is like. How did they get here? What's their journey? What's their past? You know, what do they like? What do they do all day? And those kind of things. And part of that is because we want everyone to see themselves in that pathway. You know, they didn't decide to do this in eighth grade and then took the right steps in high school and took the perfect steps after, you know, that's not how it happened. Everyone has this weird ping pong. You know, you and I are sitting here talking, you know, we didn't decide in eighth grade, we were going to, you know, meet up here and, and those kind of things. And I say that all the time, right? Like, out of all the things that I went to school for and my degrees on the wall say, am I really doing that? You know, yeah. it, it's interesting. And and so 
I think it's one of those things that when we, we look back and we look at these stigmas, I think it's, it's, it's self-inflicted yeah. uh, very much so. And, and I think that the only way we're getting out of there is sharing these stories. And I share them all the time. I often, you know, I'm self-proclaimed preacher of sorts um, that, that tends to get on the soapbox and, and go after that. You've probably already seen that this morning. But I think that the only way that we really start to combat this is, is, is education awareness. The awareness gap in, in manufacturing is 10 times that of the skills gap. You know, there is no doubt about that. And so the way that we combat that is multifaceted, very much hitting it from both sides, you know, looking at K-12, looking at, you know, you know, everyone thinks, oh, it's youth. We're talking skills gap. It's, uh, it's down the stream. It's as much mainstream adults sitting in your community that are underutilized, underutilized talent where, where they haven't had the great career day talk either, you know, and no one's told them about the opportunities that exist and the pathways to get there. And, and we spend a lot of time focused on, on those individuals because, you know, again, I don't care if you're 14 or 40, no one's had the conversation. You haven't had it. And, and, and you don't have that awareness to really make those decisions or, or understand those pathways. And so it, it's really critically important. Yep. hundred percent. Um, Let's talk about America Makes. Talk to us about the services that you guys provide and then obviously your role within the organization. Yeah, and so so I lead educational workforce development for what's called the National Center of Defense Manufacturing and Machining. That's the parent of America Makes. Uh, NCDMM by acronym. Um, we are focused on um, specifically the warfighter and ensuring that the warfighter does not ever fight an even fight uh, in the United States, meaning that our deck is always stacked, right? And we have more capability, um, you know, than our adversary. And so America makes, which is the Additive Manufacturing Institute, we were the first institute stood up in 2012 by an act of Congress in the White House. This was out of the Obama administration. And this was to ensure U.S. competitiveness. And now there are 17 brothers and sisters uh, institutes all focused around a technology focus area. Um, so we are additive manufacturing that America makes. Um, but we also focus on two other thrust areas. So one, the first, there's three thrust areas. The first is technology, maturation, adoption, um, deployment of the technology with manufacturers in the United States. That also focuses on the R&D space. So if we looked at a scale of like zero to 10, and you said, oh, well, zero and one is invention and 10 is commercialization. We're really looking at steps like two through eight. And how do we accelerate those ideas to get those to you know, commercialization with our members faster, right? So we don't, we don't commercialize any of that. We're just here to help it go quicker. Um, and so we are a membership-based organization. So about 250 members, some of the big household names that you would know, but also some of the small media manufacturers and, and really innovation spots that exist in the small manufacturers, less than 10 even. Um, and we really call that our ecosystem work that works on things like supply chain. We, we saw how bad that was impacted during the pandemic and those kind of things. So we have a team that just focuses on ecosystem. And then there's the team that I lead at the Institute and the organization that's all focused around education workforce development. In that realm of education workforce development, now, we have a very healthy portfolio of about 20 projects that focus across a K to gray spectrum that we like to call it. You know, so we work as low as elementary schools because we also know that 
Students are deciding whether they like math or science, which candidly is needed in all of these uh, job roles. They're deciding that by about second, third grade. And that's mm -hmm. why we work really low. But having that pathway from elementary, middle to high school, community college and beyond is important. But we also work all the way up to the gray space, which is the reskill upskill uh, around adults, ensuring there's pathways for mainstream adults, underserved communities, even even those who may be uh, you know, formerly incarcerated or justice involved, obviously doing a lot of work around veterans and separated service members and those kind of things. We are a Department of Defense supported institute set up as a nonprofit. Uh, both organizations are. Um, and then uh, currently also a public-private partnership. So very much set up with the kind of gateway between, you know, our public entities, federal, state, government, all of those entities, and the private sector, which is our members, uh, which is the company side as well. Can you talk to us about some of your programs that you developed underneath the education workforce development umbrella, um, specifically, you know, some of the successes that you've seen as a result of those programs? It's, I certainly can. And so, you know, as I mentioned, you know, for us, K to Gray is, is important. So we really focus to balance the portfolio between working on, you know, this adult sector, reskill, upskill, incumbent worker, um, you know, in that bucket and then working on the, you know, what we would call the talent stream, right? Mm -hmm. Called a talent stream because it's not just a pipeline. There's not just one, one end on this side, one end on that side, you go through it, right? It's a talent stream, uh, you know, where you can stand any point on the shore, you know, and fish in, right? So, so the same thing is true there. And so we had some really great projects lately, you know, meeting the need uh, in the warfighter, for example. So working with Navy operations out of the Pentagon to build a three-tiered apprenticeship pathway for the the naval civilian workforce. So these are artisans within the naval enterprise. And so, you know, building that validated credentialed pathway um, for those naval civilians uh, was, was critically important. And I think that's going to be a jumping point uh, as we continue to work with, with not only Navy enterprise, but across Army and those kind of things, right? Because, you know, more and more we're seeing, you know, we talked about the shift in, in even high school, right, with, with uh, you know, career tech ed and with even community college now in the, in the AT, you know, the advanced technology and education centers and, and those kind of things. And, and so many community colleges have beautiful spaces and the opportunity to, to do some world-class training as well. And we're working with a couple uh, specifically on that, uh, both in Ohio, some down in Florida and some other spots as well. But when we look at all of those things, um, you know, you look at this this opportunity to really shape the the DOD landscape because again, when those you know young ladies and young men are signing up to to wear the uniform and, and do a service that we all should be very grateful and thankful, and, and we never, you know, in my family, we never pass a warfighter without saying thanks. We never pass a, a vet without saying thanks, and so, but. To be able to use that and catapult that to build a skill set, um, to make a living and to make a really, you know, to have a really good paying job is important. Uh, and so that has been just a really cool project for us of recent, uh, you know, we're using that again to catapult into a couple other ones. So that's really cool. But I think 
you know, we talked about a couple of these. I mean, we had some really cool projects and, and I'll mash them all together because it's really how we do this, right? It's not like, oh, we did this one thing. No, it's we did this thing that's bolted to this one. Think of it like Legos, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just are in the midst of, you know, completing a micro learning pathway. And mm-hmm. these micro learning pathways are all built on these little like 10 minute bursts of education, um, you know, hands on project based training, but set in a virtual environment, self paced. Um, and they're not built to, to be this in depth training. It's built to really open your mind and, and really build awareness of what is the additive process, right? From start to finish. Where's the opportunity in the additive process? Because in, in the additive industry, there's not just two jobs. You know, a lot of people think, oh, I could be a technician or an engineer. And a lot of times when I talk to, to even students, they'll say, I want to be an engineer. And I'm going to say, wow, that's great. You're going to drive trains. That's so cool. And they just look at you, you know, and it's like, wait, no, it's not. And I'm like, what kind of engineer? There's hundreds, yep. you know, and, and so the same thing is true in, in the additive process. There are job roles and, and we're right now we're tracking a really cool platform to to take job roles in the industry competency to those job roles and then match them with the trainings that exist to gain proficiencies right so i mean we're looking at over 100 job roles across the industry but the best way to build that awareness is to get people hands-on with the technology and so these micro learning pathways that start in middle school and then work through high school we have about a dozen middle school modules for middle schoolers we have you know over 20 for high schools and 20 for adults. And then we're even building four leadership modules. And these are for industry leadership as well as DOD leadership. And so this will provide a great platform that's fast and that can build some awareness, right? Because with additives specifically, and, and we really look at additive as an opportunity to really get you hooked into advanced manufacturing. Because I, you know, as I mentioned, my wife, third grade teacher, um, you know, we have printers in her third grade math and science classroom. And so we can do that in additive, right? We can take a 3D printer. We can put it in an elementary classroom. We could put it in a home for a homebound student. You know, we could put them in a lot of places. It's really hard to do that with a five axis CNC mill. You know, there's some limitations there and there's candidly some intimidation that comes with those big pieces of equipment. But we can use some of those same concepts. You know, we can teach safety. We can teach design. We can teach problem solving, critical thinking. We can teach quality uh, and understanding of, of quality and inspection. We can teach things like coding. You know, we can teach things like Cartesian coordinates, you know, X, Y, and Z, because that's what these machines run on. There's so many of those cross competencies that we can teach and, and additive uh, into that realm. And so by having this pathway of micro learning, you know, for a lot of times they tell folks like, join us for like, you know, do these for two weeks during lunch you know, and you'll really go through them and they're micro credentialed and everything so that we really want to capture the knowledge. You know, we don't want to lose anybody. As I always affectionately say, I don't want to lose anybody to the fast food chains. Not that that's a bad thing, but we need those people. So, you know, we're going to capture wherever they were on the continuum, you know, and interject them into, into the talent stream. And so there's an opportunity there, but I think that's two very different ends of the spectrum. And really showcase the differences of how we work uh, in these environments from something that's a very core fundamental, you know, deep dive training piece to something that's really trying to, you know, widen the funnel as we talk, you know, we talk about, you could talk skills gap from 2.4 million, you know, to 4 million. I mean, there's a lot of numbers out there. You know, we know in the additive industry, you know, when we include every role that we need to support additive manufacturing, 
it's about 50,000. We know that. But we also know a couple other data points, which is, you know, the average job uh, in the industry, over 50% of those are entry level that require, you know, not looking at bachelor's degrees. Um, we know that the additive job pay, typically, it trends higher. Uh, most of those entry level jobs, the majority of them, sixty to $80,000. You know, they do range from like 45 to 125, but most of them are 60 to 80. And we also know that now we're starting to see a trend where even core manufacturing jobs are paying a premium if you have additive experience. And so, you know, that's a great opportunity to come in and utilize some of these tools to help, you know, give you one step up uh, as you look at it, even just a core manufacturing job in the industry as well. How important is it for... You know, I'll use just the term academia, right? K through gray to have relationships with the private sector so that the private sector can inform them and or expose them of every everything changes every you know two seconds now, right? You have to learn a new thing every every year, every two years. And so how important is that relationship so you can help drive what actually needs to be taught? Yeah, I mean, so when you look at the, you know, the the mission statement of our work, both that, you know, in this education work portfolio that I lead at NCDMM and America makes literally the end of that statement is buy and for to meet the needs of industry and the department of defense. It's there because everything we do roots back to a body of knowledge that is stood up by industry and defense. That's where they're giving us the sound signal, the demand signal that says we need people that can do this. Yep. I need people that know how, that know that. Mm -hmm. um, and so every project. So when I talked about, you know, just those couple of projects that involves dozens of subject matter experts mm -hmm. directly from industry. And that, I mean, we did some new industry credentialing over the last couple of years because we had saw a couple of gaps. And so, you know, one of these was in high school, very rigorous program. You know, we had a group that included people from Raytheon, that included people from small medium manufacturers out of Texas that supported the defense, uh, you know, uh, industrial base. We had we had a couple of um, high school teachers. We had a university professor. We had a community college teacher. You know, we had we had there was probably 18 people in that advisory group. And we met on Wednesday nights from like six to nine. And it was like that for six months. Um, and it was like, you know, candidly and affectionately bring a cold beverage, sit down after dinner and we're going to hash out, you know, how do we approach this? What do we talk about? How do we use the terminology? What would be appropriate for the age? I mean, so like, not only did we put educators in the room because that's important that we can deploy the things that we talk about and make sure they're age appropriate and students can be successful, but ensuring that industry is getting what they need, ensuring defense that we can, that we can, you know, draw the line to where these make sense for them as well. And I think, you know, these bodies of knowledge, these frameworks, we worked on a number of the, you know, new D Department of Labor focused apprenticeship programs. And we have two of them that we've been able to work with, with some great partners and those kind of things. But it all roots back to these large project teams, these subject matter experts. I think right now in our portfolio, about 20 projects, I mean, we have we almost we have well over a hundred subject matter experts engaged today, um, and those are coming directly from our members uh, across the U.S. where where they're volunteering time, 
you know, to contribute because, you know, we want these to truly be industry voice and supporting the Department of Defense. The only way we get that is by having that conversation because it wouldn't, it would do no one any good to sit and, and create in a vacuum. Um, yeah. Because again, way too often, and I've been unfortunate in my life to sit on a panel of sometimes where you have that and one person says, well, what you need is this. And then industry saying, that's not what we need. It's not what we want either, you know, then yeah. there's a big disconnect. So we, we make sure that we anchor everything in, with subject matter expertise directly out of that, that environment specifically. Yeah, that's great. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit to your education philosophy. You have said that um, part of your philosophy is to encourage students to think, you know, without a box, right? Not inside or out, but just simply without a box. Explain, you know, what you mean by that and, you know, how that ideology has shaped your program or, or development strategies. Yeah. I mean, you know, quite often, and I, you know, I, I'm a, I'm one who can poke fun at myself all day long. I, you know, we have fun at work. I say it all the time. If you don't want to laugh at work, don't come, you know, one of those things. And I very much can make fun of myself all the time, but guys, I have all of these little sayings, right. And thinking without a box is definitely one of them. Um, and this came back from my classroom days, you know, I, again, I always felt it was really cool, uh, to educate youth because a lot of times I was doing something so different than they were used to, you know, they were used to sitting in a seat in rows, teacher in front of the classroom, teacher had the right answer. All I had to do was do the same steps and get to the same answer. The teacher had If our answers matched. I got it right. I was doing the right thing. Then they would come to my classroom. And I would and I would do the opposite of that and say, I'm going to teach you a toolbox. I'm going to teach you all of these tools to use. And I'm going to ask you to solve a problem. But you own the solution to that problem. And I don't have anything to say about that. It's yours. And and at that point, I'm geek squad, right? I'm just here to help, you know. So I always told students, you know, if you approach me, it always had to be in the form of a question, you know, saying this doesn't work or I can't figure this out. Those are statements, you know, like, question i said and, and furthermore you know because you're trying to teach critical thinking and problem solving which is really hard um you know but most of those students they they've had the blinders put on because they've just so focused to all they need to do is get the teacher's answer mm-hmm. and so often you know i had a, a former principal who just you know he would laugh sometimes and first day of school you know just thinking of of their first day today and and my kids tomorrow and and those kind of things but we I would do this project and, and it was, you know, and we did it a couple different ways over the years, but it was, it was designed to fail. No student was, you know, like we would take and be like, ah, you have a box full of these materials, you know, we're going to put an egg in there and slingshot it in the wall. See if you can make it survive. It would never survive, but that was the point. And it was all driven to <clears throat> the process is more important than the product. And I would tell the students that all the time, understand the process, understand. And then we would do these, these writings after that were like, Hey, if I could do this again and I had all the material and all the time, how would I change it? How would I approach it? You know? And, and so we would do that and I would line them all up on a table and I'd will a garbage can over and I would just throw them away. And there would be students that would literally start to tear up and I would inevitably get a parent phone call and I would have to explain, this is about the process, not the product. And, and, and they didn't fail. You know, if the process was there and they executed the process, that's what I'm grading. I have no, it doesn't matter what happened to that thing. We just tested it. 
you know, and, and those, and, and those kind of things. And so when we talk about without a box, you know, and, and so you always think of like, Oh, think outside the box. Well, what if we took the box away? You know, and, and I used to explain this to students, you know, and I'm talking, you know, 10, 11, 12 year olds, like take the box away. What if there were no box? And, and so it was a lot about understanding that you own the solution to the problem and, and, and you own the steps of that solution and use your toolbox to go after it. But don't think just because, you know, the, the group next to you has this idea or you have been told this is kind of the construct that we have to sit in that it has to be that way and so a lot of times for those students and and we had some students and i had mentioned earlier you know having the opportunity and really cool opportunity for me personally that stay in touch with a lot of these students and they share memories you know all the time and they're like hey remember that time you know, kind of thing. And, and it's just super cool because those are the times where they were thinking without a box. Those are the times where it was, the sky was the limit. And, and they really were using every, you know, I had students that would, again, after you taught all these tools and then you give them a design solution. I mean, there were students that, that would instantly go to CAD and then be like, Oh, I want to design this, to 3d print it where I'm going to cut some stuff out on the lathes. And like they would use the tools in that space because they, they didn't have the construct of like, oh, I need a kit or I need instructions or, mm-hmm. you know, and I literally sometimes would be like, don't think of what comes in a box. Yep. Like, don't think of, oh, here's all my parts and they're already nice and neat and I'm going to use all of them and here's my instructions and everyone's going to get the same with the picture on the box. It was like, there is no box. And, yep. and I really felt like when we got to those places and, and that didn't happen in a year, it didn't happen in two years. You know, we had a four year pathway and by the fourth year, those students, they would use that lab and, and the number of students that I had come back after a year of engineering school and say, we had more fun here. <laughs> we had more fun in this middle school classroom yeah. because it was like, we could use all this stuff and, and you didn't care if we failed and you didn't care if we broke it. And, you know, I often even say that about, you know, even today I visit labs and I was just sharing this with my team earlier because we were building some programs and visiting some different, you know, facilities. And and I walked right over to a, you know, big five axis CNC machine. And I, I looked inside and they were like, what are you looking for? And I said, I'm looking for where someone buried a bit into the table. I said, because that tells me that a student had their hands on it because they're inevitably always forget the set zero. And, and they'll just hit the go button and think it's all great and just hit go. And then it doesn't know the machine doesn't know where it's at. Right. And, and so it's just one of those things where you can tell, you know, you can tell if the students had their hands on something because there's a big, you know, when I had students that used to come back, you know, from, you know, we had a couple that came back and spoke that went directly into industry and had some great jobs. And then, you know, some students that went on to school and came, would come back and volunteer in the summer programs and those kind of things. And it was a great opportunity. But the first thing they would always do is walk over to those pieces of equipment and look for the damage they, that they did. You know, and it was one of those things when we leave it there and they were like, oh, why didn't you fix that? I'm like, because there's a student that always says, why is that there? You know, and you know, it's a really cool thing. And it's a obvious reminder. But I think that's that's really the theory of like without a box. Right. And and again, in our industry, where I'm at now is, is really cool. You know, we're at this, obviously I'm on the workforce side, but I have enough peek into the, the tech side and really work close with that team to 
really see you know some great people that are thinking without a box on the innovation side and so that doesn't go away that's not something that only happens when you're you know young and in in those early years these are things these are people that grow up and still think that way uh you know and still have that innovation mindset and that's really cool to see that's great um we could use some of that a little bit in the corporate world i think (laughs) sometimes sometimes Yeah. yeah So, Josh, this has been fantastic. We appreciate it, man. We're going to get you out of here on some uh, rapid-fire questions, and then we're going to talk about uh, some free publicity for some favorite places to eat in Northeast Ohio or Western PA. But first, rapid-fire questions. We have four of them. First one is best piece of advice you've ever received. Oh, Best piece of advice I've ever received was be patient. Worst piece of advice you've ever received. Uh be candid all the time. <laughs> uh, what is the best and or your favorite book you've ever read? Uh, favorite book for me personally is um, by Trevor Mowat. And um, it's a book that, that's the power of neutral thinking. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it, it takes what it takes. Um, and it's, it's, I'm always working on me and, and I'm not saying that I'm an expert in that I'm working at it every day. Um, but it's, it's a neutral thinking book all about, you know, uh, embracing where you're at, you know, and, and not, not being overly positive, not being overly negative, sitting right in the middle, uh, so that you can be clear and make decisions and those kind of things, but I had the chance to meet him and, and listen to him speak and those kind of things. Just a, a great read, uh, especially on the corporate side, you wouldn't think it's a transfer, but um, you know, because he's an athletic, you know, mind coach, but I think it's a, it's an interesting read. Or mutual thinking. I like it. Okay. Last one is who inspires you? Oh, who inspires me? Probably my kids. Love it. I have, a, I have a son who's a race car driver. You know, he, he races go-karts and sprint cars and, you know, hands-on kid, uh, has Asperger's, has challenges, you know, but super, super big heart you know, probably sees the best in everyone all the time. Um, my daughter is probably a training ballerina seven days a week. Um, probably one of the hardest working people I know. That's awesome. That's great. Um, okay. Last question. Most people think it's the hardest question, but what are your, uh, go-to restaurants? Now you're, you're on the move. So I had to keep this. This is a two state question. <laughs> Western PA, Northeast Ohio. I mean, it could kind of be a lot of different places, but oh. what, uh, what's your free, free publicity for uh, some, some of your yeah, favorite it, it, That's a good one. I mean, and geez, I've been all over, so it, it's know. not an easy one. I mean, but I, I'm also a, a local guy, meaning that I love to eat local when I travel for work. I think mm-hmm. in Cleveland, Lucky's Cafe ah, is okay. a super unique spot um, in, in Northeast Ohio. Uh, right in the neighborhood, very farm to table, local, you know, very, uh, you know, local ingredient type shop. If you're in, ever in Western PA and by Western PA, it's like, you know, you talk about Pennsylvania, like where you're from, you're, well, you're mostly from Pittsburgh or Philly. Mm-hmm. If you went to Penn State, you're from State College. And then there's a, you know, a handful, uh, John Wilsinski, our executive director is from Erie. So you'll hear some from Erie too, mm-hmm. but that's about it. Even though I'm not from Pittsburgh. I'm from southeast of Pittsburgh, uh, out towards the mountains a little bit. There is a little kind of roadside dive here called the Red Caboose, uh, which is a hot dog 
place, nice. um, which is, which is, you know, probably 45 minutes outside the city, which is a have to stop if you ever drive by it, um, you know, kind of thing. So that would be my local spot, you know, here, here within the local region. I love it. Awesome. Well, Josh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We appreciate it, man. Good luck with everything, uh, the rest of 2023 and we'll talk with you soon. Absolutely. It was a pleasure being here. Looking forward to, uh, to a great year and appreciate all that you are all doing, uh, sharing the great, great stories. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Rust Belt Rundown. Make sure you check us out at rustbeltrecruiting.com. The Rust Belt Rundown is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and click on five stars if you enjoyed this episode. See you next time 